The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time now to open the scriptures together. And if you haven't already, I would encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures and open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's on page 555 of a Bible in the pew rack. If you don't have one, grab the one in front of you and come with me into the book of Ecclesiastes, which, as I have been acknowledging throughout now the uh, couple months of spending time in Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes is an incredibly challenging book. Uh, my, my wife would tell you how much I have been sweating Ecclesiastes for weeks and weeks and weeks. I see no end in sight of the sweating that I'm doing, right? So I have to admit to you that even and especially this week, really feeling the way to the book of Ecclesiastes, and here's why. Ecclesiastes does not put rose-colored glasses on our view of the world. Ecclesiastes tells the truth about life under the sun, and we'll revisit that, of course, but it tells the unvarnished and sometimes difficult truth. But here's the good news. When we don't distort the reality of struggle in this fallen world, when we don't try to deny it and put it aside and brush it under the rug, the gospel becomes all the more glorious because it speaks into the realities of the struggle of life in a fallen world. Ecclesiastes pulls no punches and in that way uh, tells us the truth. So, uh, I hope you're ready. I'm trying to be ready myself for Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's pray. Ask God's blessing. Father, uh, we turn to You saying that this is Your Word. Here You speak to us Your truth. So, Father, Would you come by your Spirit and be gracious to us? Be gracious to open our minds to understand by illumination your truth and receive it not only into our minds, but also into our hearts, our very souls, that we might be your people in genuine covenant, sincerity, and faithfulness. Lord, show grace and favor to us. Have mercy upon me as I preach and teach. Lord, guide us all, we pray. In the name of Christ, our covenant King and Lord. Amen. And now here, Ecclesiastes 4. We're reading all of the chapter. Ecclesiastes 4, under the heading, Evil Under the Sun. Hear now the Word of God. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought... The dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that 
He never asks, for whom am I toiling or depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So may He write its truth on our hearts today. Well, let me tell you about something that I uh, saw actually really early this morning uh, on Rockridge's junior high school uh, athletic stream was a stream of a junior high basketball game. And uh, maybe some of you have already seen this. Uh, there was a mother of a cheerleader who was operating an iPad so that people could take in the basketball game because there's limited attendance to these things. And uh, the iPad could only get so much of the court to such a degree that it could only pick up one of the two baskets, right? And basketball, of course, involves both hoops and the action of the game goes both ways. But the image and the video was only capturing one side, which also happened to be Rockridge's side. And parents of the opponent's team were quite displeased with this and the varying degree of, oh, you're, you know, you're skirting our children and all the rest. You're avoiding them. Uh, it was a one-sided view of the basketball game. It was frustrating frustrating to those parents. Uh, and as I actually read some of the comments, I am very concerned that adults are attempting to teach children about cyberbullying when they interact with each other a particular way online. Nevertheless, it was a one-sided view, okay? And it was frustrating. I thought about that in reference to this passage because this passage seems so one-sided and one-sided views of things are frustrating because if we say it's not the full picture. The person operating the iPad needed a wide lens to be able to take in the whole of the game. And you and I need a wide lens in order to appreciate what Ecclesiastes 4 is saying. Otherwise, we will just focus in on one part and miss the big picture. So we're taking a wide view of this text attempting to understand it so if you've been following along with us as we've been studying the book of ecclesiastes you have begun to appreciate how unlike any other book in the bible ecclesiastes is but let me just give you a quick reminder especially if you've not been with us and we're glad that you are what the big picture of Ecclesiastes is doing is a preacher is gathering an assembly of people and he is speaking to them about realities of life in this world under the sun. And the key phrase in Ecclesiastes is life under the sun. 
The big idea of life under the sun is a life with a particular worldview that only factors in a horizontal horizon. A life of under the sun means a rejection of a vertical worldview that factors God in. Ecclesiastes is operating from a horizontal perspective that says, let's talk about the world and the ways of the world and the experiences of life in this world under the sun without reference to God. So the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, let's talk about life. Let's go down these particular roads and then ask the question, is this going to satisfy us? Is this reality of life in this world going to satisfy us? If not this, what about that? And along the way, the preacher is ticking through these various boxes to say, what about this? What about this? What about this? Will this satisfy? And along the way, the preacher is saying, it's not that. It's not that. It's not that. What will it be? Well... Here in chapter 4, rather than offering up another avenue, as other avenues will be offered later in the book, the preacher pauses and says, can we be honest for a moment about what we observe in the world? Can we be honest about what we look around and see? Five different times in chapter 4, we will see the preacher say, again, I saw. And then he'll tell us what he's looking at. It's a simple idea, really. What is it that you see? And what is it that you make of what you see? Now, the temptation is, we're only in chapter 4, and you may be thinking, you know, I think I've seen enough of what the preacher sees in Ecclesiastes. I think I'm done with the message that he's giving because it's wearing me out. And I want you to know, that's the point. It is the preacher's intention in Ecclesiastes to bring you to a point of weariness if we are committed to only viewing life as under the sun rather than under heaven with God factored in. Well, if you're tempted to be worn out from Ecclesiastes and say enough is enough, the preacher wants you to look again and say don't quit looking, look with me now. The preacher is here observing the world and it is driving him to a place that causes you to be tempted to say, you know what, enough is enough. But one more look, he says. He is looking at the world under the sun, lingering under the idea of a secular worldview. Again, life under the sun says there is no God, and because there is no God, there is no such thing as right and wrong. And because there is no God and no such thing as right and wrong, there is no such thing as purpose. Nothing has meaning. What are the fruits of that worldview? Well, this is what becomes of it. And again, the reason why he's doing this is attempting to persuade you that this is not the way. Let's walk all the way down this path to be fully convinced that this is not the way. So what does he see? First of all, he sees three things, and we're just going to hit them very, very quickly. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 7, each begins a new explanation of what the preacher sees. In verse 1, it's oppressions. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them 
And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. The preacher says, look, this world is full of such oppression and such power and ballast that it is true that some people might say, you know what? It is better that I had never been born than be subject to this oppression. And the preacher sees it and says, don't you see it too? Don't you see oppression and horror? He also says in verses 4, 5, and 6, Verse 4, then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. He's talking here about rivalry and the fact that envy is the primary motor for people to accomplish so that they can have more than their neighbor so that they can be seen as possessing more, being greater, having more accomplishments. Rivalry and envy is the motor of all of our decisions, the preacher says. I see it, and it's everywhere. Do you see it? Maybe do you recognize it in your own heart, perhaps? You want more than the next. You see what someone else has, and you work to have more or have the same or better than, whatever the case might be. He sees oppression. He sees rivalry. And then in verse 7 through 8, he sees, verse 7 again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? A self-absorbed greed that is single, generationally focused, gathering for the sake of possessing, just for the sake of having, with no interest in passing on. It is just greed. It's not stewardship. The preacher says, let me look around for a moment and let me tell you what I see as far as the activity of humanity under the sun. I see oppression. I see rivalry and envy and greed. And you think, good grief. Sorrowful business, isn't it? What unites these three things together? What is the same about all of them? I think in a general fashion, what the preacher is causing us to, get, to, to identify in these three various forms of oppression, rivalry, and greed is that every single one of these things, oppression, rivalry, greed, promote a view of life that is inherently self-isolating. Oppression, rivalry, greed cuts a person off from others. As their pursuits of oppression, as their pursuits of rivalry, as their pursuits of greed turns them away from other people. Isolates themselves in their own little kingdoms Deceived that this is really the way to fulfillment. This is really the way to satisfaction. And the preacher is saying, it's not. And you'll end up isolated, lonely, miserable. And so these three self-isolating pursuits are outlined against two different and two seemingly disconnected parables that the preacher tells. Again, we're trying to get a wide-angle, big picture of what this text is all about. You have three self-isolating pursuits, oppression, rivalry, greed, and then he tells two parables. The first one is in verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one, verse 9 says, 
because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So see, see he is contrasting self-isolating pursuits with the virtue of community, with the virtue of companionship. He sets solitary success against a picture of genuine companionship and speaking about the dangers of self-isolation. Now this text might be familiar to you, just this portion of it, because verses 9 through 12 are often read at weddings. And uh, it's not wrong by any means. Uh, It's just very rarely you will find all of chapter 4 read at the wedding. It's just verses 9 through 12. And it's it's a good and right thing that this is saying. Companionship is good. Self-isolation is not healthy. We need one another. Two are better than one. What are the benefits of this type of companionship? Well, there's four of them that come out right away. In verse 9, it's more profitable. There's good reward for toil. In verse 10, you are there to lift up a fellow. There's help in times of need. In companionship, verse 11, there is more comfort. And in verse 12, greater protection. It's more profitable, it's more helpful, it's more comfortable, it's more protection-oriented. Companionship rather than self-isolation. So set against these pursuits of life that are self-isolating is the virtue of companionship. You say, well, that seems to make enough sense. But then he says this other parable, and you think, what in the world does that have to do with the rest of it? That was literally me all week long. What in the world does all of this have to do with itself? Well, this other parable in verses 13 to 16 speaks about the dangers of instability. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. You can keep reading it if you like. Let me give you the basic summary of this little parable. It might seem a little bit strange. The basic summary is that it's possible for someone to be uh, achieving public acclaim and have worldly success and simultaneously be a solitary person. You have an old and foolish king who loses touch who stops taking advice from others. He's been on the top so long that he begins to reject outside counsel and help and wisdom. His isolation leads to irrelevance. His irrelevance leads to people uh, removing him and being replaced by somebody younger than him. And the people forget their king. The preacher is saying here, uh, leadership, public influence, often works like this, and it's just a cycle. Someone arises to the top, only to be replaced by somebody else, inevitably. Maybe much sooner than they thought. And the people are filled with excitement at this new and exciting person, this new and shiny leader, who's definitely going to be better than the old and cranky one, but you know what? Soon enough, they're going to forget him too, because the young guy becomes the old guy, and the old guy gets replaced by a new young guy. And here's Ecclesiastes back in this kind of repetitive cycle of this is how the world works the new eventually becomes old the old becomes discarded and on and on so verse 16 surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind and what's the lesson of all that well here from Jim Carrey remember Jim Carrey meteoric celebrity rise in the 90s Equal meteoric downfall, epic nosedive 
He said this about success. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer to their happiness. And if you won't take it from Jim Carrey, consider George Harrison of Beatle fame who said this, at first, I thought I just wanted to be famous. And after a bit, we realized that fame wasn't exactly what we were after at all. I just wanted the fruits of being famous. After the initial excitement and thrill had worn off, I just became depressed. Is this all we have to look forward to in life? Being chased around by a crowd of hooting lunatics from one bad hotel room to the next. And you think George Harrison, epic celebrity, totally lonely and isolated. See, the book of Ecclesiastes is working in this direction of the, the world and the view of life under the sun is praising these virtues that are actually incredibly self-isolating and lonely. You think that by pursuing them, you will rise to the top and receive what you want. You think that by oppressing others, it causes you to rise and be great and be strong. You think that by your rivalry and envy of others, it will satisfy you. You think that by your greed and the acclamation of more and more stuff, that it'll satisfy with what you want and all of it is empty, the preacher is saying. It's all vanity. It's all getting you nowhere. And you know it. That's why he says it's just striving after the wind, going from one bad hotel room to the other. Here's the challenging thing about Ecclesiastes, though. Ecclesiastes doesn't tell you what to do about it. It just tells you what's true. Ecclesiastes says, here's the problem. But it very, very, very rarely ever says, here's the solution. Which is why we have to see Ecclesiastes by the wide angle, by the broader lens to see what is really true. If we are tempted to think, well, Ecclesiastes is here telling me the world is an evil place, but what I should do is to have a friend, have a companion, and stop being such a jerk, and life will be great. But that's, that's not the fullness of what Ecclesiastes is saying. Although I encourage you to give up on being a selfish jerk. Don't do it. Don't be a selfish jerk. And it's good to have some companionship. It's good to have friendship. Though I think real, true friendship is, is a rare jewel. What does it look like? What is it that Jesus calls us to in light of the fact that what the preacher says is true about the way people are convinced the way the world works? And how do you and I, as Christian believers, interact in a world that is convinced that life under the sun is all that there is? Well, I want to say to you that what Jesus is doing in the world, what Jesus has come into the world to do, is take this life under the sun and transform it. Jesus is at work to transform a view of life under the sun to give you a view of life under heaven, in Christ, by faith. Jesus is renewing what is fallen, transforming oppression into compassion, rivalry into contentment, and greed into stewardship so that the things the preacher identifies here in a fallen world might no longer be true of you who are pursuing life under heaven. 
So I'm setting up a contrast here. What the preacher says about life under the sun, the way people are motivated to live their lives, Jesus doesn't call you to live that way. Jesus doesn't call you to pursue, to pursue oppression and rivalry and greed, but rather compassion, contentment, and stewardship. And let me, in, let, me in, let me let you in on a secret about this, okay? Jesus is in the business of transforming the world so that we would look around at the world and see not a pessimism, but the evidence of his transformation. And where is the evidence of his transformation supposed to be? The answer to that question is in you. The evidence of Jesus' transformation of the world is supposed to be evidenced by me, within me, as Jesus changes me, your transformation of your life as a Christian. And you know what? That sounds like a lot of pressure because you look in the mirror and you say, I don't, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going so well. And sometimes I feel like I'm stumbling along. We attempt to live our lives that honor the Lord and sometimes we give our attention to life under the sun rather than life in Christ. And we feel like, I don't know if Jesus is really at work here, but I want to offer you this encouragement that that's exactly the point. That we look at ourselves and say, I don't know, I don't know if I'm everything that I'm supposed to be. The point is, is that in our weakness, we look to the Lord to give us strength to live for Christ so that those around us who are living their life merely under the sun might look at our lives and say something's different. You don't, you don't hold greed and rivalry and oppression as a virtue. You're different. And you can say, well, it's not me. It's what Jesus is doing in my life as He is transforming me and working His grace in me to transform the world in and through me. I think that that is the big picture of what Ecclesiastes 4 is talking about. A view of life that recognizes the evil under the sun but seeks to rise above that to a life under heaven and a life in Christ. Now here's my one point of application for us in that. I think that that's true in this text. And again, the point is, is that all these characteristics of evil under the sun are self-isolating. So let me tell you one of the most important realities of your life as a Christian. Rather than self-isolation, is the virtue of Christian community. The virtue of Christian community. The transformation of our lives under heaven means moving away from self-isolating pursuits toward a life in Christian community. You know what? I really think it's actually that simple. That your Christian life is fundamentally about not yourself, but the life you live amongst one another as a church family, as a community of believers where you are walking together and living out your faith and being transformed and seeing other people transformed and growing and seeking to be more like Jesus and growing in His knowledge and growing in His truth and growing in His wisdom. And sometimes when you feel like you're stumbling and not as far along as you want to be, you can look around and receive encouragement from one another. Christianity is not an independent reality. It is a communal reality. Rather than pursuing these self-isolating pursuits 
of sinful gain and goal is the virtue of the church of Jesus Christ and the community of Christian believers. That's why it's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? To see new folks say, yeah, I want to do that too. And I want to do that along with you. I want to share in the vision of life under heaven rather than continue to muck through a view of life under the sun and my self-isolating pursuits. I want to live together in Christ with you as a body of believers. So I want to simply encourage you that if you are someone that is convinced that these realities of self-isolating pursuits of oppression and rivalry and greed are all around you, and you see other people motivated by them, you ask yourself the question, how is Jesus transforming me to live not life under the sun, but live life in Him in such a way that His transforming work is visible? And if you need encouragement in that, the place you get it is here. The place you get it is right here as Jesus transforms the world through the visible body of Christ. Dear friends, it's as simple as that and it's as complicated as that at the same time. So why don't we ask God's help to understand it. Father, And we look to you and we confess that your word to us is true and right but sometimes comes to us in varying degrees of clarity. Yet, Lord, the reality is you call us to life in your Son rather than life for ourselves. Pray, Lord, that you would bless this church and its people. You would cause us to fix our eyes upon Jesus and seek Him in a way that His grace multiplies and transforms us as it transforms the world around us. Lord, would you be so gracious as to have this church, Edgington, be a part of that kingdom reality? And will you sustain it in us for the sake of the praise of Jesus, we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.